Thank you, Tommy. <clears throat> Tommy has been, my in, his influence in my life these past few months in working with him has been a gift to me, and I'm sure he's a gift to you all. So if you could turn in your Bibles with me to John 14. Whether it's on your screens or your Bibles, turn there, John 14, 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. I was sitting on the hood of my car in a Starbucks parking lot, staring up at the clouds, saying, reveal yourself to me, God. It was a hot July day in the summer of 2005. And I was staring at the clouds, asking God if he was real. Are you real? Is Jesus and all he is and all he did real? God, show yourself to me. Just a few months before, I had committed my life to Jesus, and I had caught fire. I was excited to tell my friends about Jesus, so I picked up the only book they were reading that referenced him, which was the Da Vinci Code at that time. (laughs) I figured I would read that and start up conversations about faith. Now, the Da Vinci Code does not claim to be true. It's fiction. That said, the book suggests that Jesus is not who the Bible says he is. Reading that, I dropped the book, put my head in my hands, and I freaked out. Now, just a few months before, God had radically altered my life. Every part of me was changing because of Jesus. And now what? Was it a sham? Was it a hoax? Was it like Bigfoot? Lots of sightings, but wishful thinking. 
there was no parting of the clouds. Sad, confused, and distressed, I slumped into my bright blue Ford Escort station wagon, and I began to drive slowly away. And out of the corner of my eye in my rearview mirror, I saw this woman who was running up to me to catch up and trying to slow me down. And I rolled my window down, and she told me that I looked very distressed in Starbucks. And I said, I am. And she asked me if she could read something to me, and so she revealed the Bible in her arms and asked if she could read Psalm 46 to me. And after reading the whole psalm, it finished with these words. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, while there was no parting of the clouds like I had prayed for, I rested completely in the power of Jesus' peace. It was life-altering. The peace of God is real, tangible, and available through faith in Jesus. Turning to our passage today, I'm going to ask you to remember four words. So if somebody asks you that later today, what was your sermon about? You can remember these four words. Peace, place, path, and power. The first word to remember this morning is peace. Jesus is our peace in all circumstances. It's been a few weeks since you guys have been in the John series, so let's do a quick recap of where we're at. We're in the upper room. John 14 finds us in the upper room. And this is immediately following Jesus' famous Last Supper. And these are the final 24 hours of Jesus' life, the final countdown. Scholars refer to this segment of scriptures as the farewell discourse, as it's Jesus' goodbye words to his disciples. Jesus chooses to spend his last day teaching and preparing his people for life without Jesus. In John 13, immediately before this passage, we see that Jesus tells his loyal followers of his coming death. That he's going to be betrayed and turned over to the Roman authorities by one of their own. And that even Peter, the chief disciple, will deny Jesus. Questions, fear, doubt grip the disciples. Jesus betrayed Even Peter denies him. Jesus, their king, is leaving. What hope do the disciples have in this hour? So this is not a light moment. The air is filled with tension and questions. And for them, the world as they see it is getting ready to shatter. The foundation of everything they had built their life on is beginning to crumble. They had begun to rightly set set their hopes on Jesus. They loved him. They loved being with him. They radically reoriented everything to physically walking around with him. And they knew hard times were coming because of their association with Jesus. And yet he would not be with him to face this upcoming trial. What would it have been like to be in that room? Jesus says to them, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
Sometimes it's hard for me to connect with the disciples. We're on the other side of the cross. We have all of God's word to make sense of things for us when for them it was a little bit hazy. Yet these words that Jesus gives his disciples are for us. We have our own types of distress, don't we? We have our own fears and troubles and anxieties. And what Jesus speaks to his disciples amidst their trial is for us and ours. I imagine if we pulled the room, we could fill the pages with the different types of troubles and anxieties we're experiencing. So in verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The first of our four concepts is peace. It's the call to still our troubled hearts and to trust Jesus because he's trustworthy. And then the following three concepts, the three words that Jesus gives us to remember is reasons why we can trust him. The first reason why we can trust Jesus for his peace is that he secures a place for us in his leaving. Jesus is our peace because he secures our place. Verse 2, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So here, to give his disciples hope, he talks about heaven. Using the illustration of a house, he said he's going to the father's mansion where there's many rooms and there's space for them. And he's by way of Jesus' death and resurrection, he's actually able to go and prepare a place for them. And that's what he's getting ready to do. Now Jesus here, as he's speaking of heaven, is not offering some soft hope to comfort people in their stress. This is not a soft hope that should kind of cover over the gruesome reality of death. He's actually bringing fulfillment to all of God's word and the history of creation with these words. When God created the world, everything was perfect, especially the relationship between God and man. People were with their holy, awesome, good, and soul-satisfying creator. And everything was right. And sin entered the world. Adam and Eve hid from their father. Sin shatters the relationship between creator and created, God and man. Our soul-satisfying peace of enjoying the glorious God was ruined. And as the rest of the Bible unfolds, we see God consistently and constantly pursuing his people to bring them back into relationship with him. He draws them out of Egypt. He's with his people in the pillar of fire and the pillar of the cloud and on the mountain and in the tabernacle. And Solomon builds a temple and God's presence was among men. And we see Jesus himself telling us that the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all our hearts and all our mind and all our soul and all our strength, meaning that everything else that comes in relationship with God comes because of our love for God and our relationship to God and our relationship with God. God has been pursuing his people to restore this broken relationship, and he knows that in his presence, as we enjoy him, we have all that we need, soul-satisfying peace. So as Jesus prepares his disciples for his leaving, ultimately his death, he says that it does not end in death. I'm going to come back for you. 
In Jesus, death has lost its sting. It is not the end. Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back to get us. And he's going to take us with him to be where he is. Note the emphasis in verse 3. I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The emphasis is on a relationship with Jesus now and forever. You might have heard some phrases about home, like home is where the heart is. Or maybe you've told a loved one that I'm home wherever you are. And in a way, Jesus is telling that to his disciples. I'm going to take you home because you're going to be with me. Does your vision of heaven include Jesus? Does your vision of heaven have Jesus satisfying the longing of your soul? Samuel Rutherford, who was once one of Charles Spurgeon's inspirations, put it this way about the relationship between Jesus and heaven. He said, oh my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could have heaven without thee, it would be hell. And if I could be in hell and have thee still, it would be heaven to me. For thou art all the heaven I want. This is why the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1 can say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And he goes on to explain that in dying, he gains fully the presence of Jesus. Paul and Rutherford are saying that Jesus is their all-sufficient hope that we have in heaven. And there are a lot of people who believe in heaven who could really care less about Jesus. And most likely each of our views of heaven is too small because our views of Jesus is too small. I've heard people say things like, man, if there are no puppies in heaven, it's going to be pretty disappointing. And while I think there will be puppies in heaven, maybe, what I'm certain of is heaven will not disappoint because Jesus does not disappoint. Heaven makes no sense without Jesus. Heaven is where Jesus is. So do not let your hearts be troubled because Jesus is going to restore your soul-satisfying peace by coming back and bringing you fully into relationship with the God who created you. And you have no longer any need to hide because of your sin. You will be in his presence now and forevermore. So in all of our fear and uncertainty and anxiety about the future, we can rest in these promises. If you have trusted your life to Jesus, Jesus has prepared a place for you. He himself has descended into the grave and risen from the grave and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the throne of God and has prepared a place for you and one day he's coming back and he's going to come get you and he's going to take you with him right where he is. But where is this place 
I love Thomas in this passage. He goes on in verse 5 to ask Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? He's asking Jesus, how do we get there? So our next word to remember is path. Jesus responds to, Je- by, to Thomas by giving the second reason why we can trust Jesus for his peace today. Thomas's type of question is normal in the book of John. In John, we frequently see Jesus describing spiritual realities with something that is with physical metaphors. And people listening only hear the physical thing. As Jesus talks about being born again, you'll remember in John 3, Nicodemus responds saying, well, how can we crawl up into our mother's womb a second time? And in John 4, when Jesus is talking about the soul-satisfying spirit that he's going to give this woman and that's available to her, she says, Lord, give me this water so I don't have to return to this physical well to draw water. And here, Thomas, hearing Jesus speak of heaven as a place with rooms, Thomas essentially asks, which way do we take 465 or 70 to get there? Verse 6, I am the way the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father except through me. Jesus is the path to being with God. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. It's possible that this verse lands hard on our modern ears. This claim articulates the exclusivity of Jesus as the only way to God. Now, our culture is increasingly pluralistic. Isn't there many ways to God? How can there be one central corner on the truth? And isn't it unloving to tell somebody that their theology is wrong and another is right? Many people who believe in a generic God and even many Christians would want to claim that all religions are different paths to the same God. And one popular religious parable that's told, parable that is told from this perspective is the parable of the elephant. Here's how it goes. Now, I'm going to abbreviate it and shorten it, but here's the basic idea. There once was a group of blind men, and they came across an elephant. And because they couldn't see, each groped about, trying to understand what the elephant was like. One man grabbed the leg and said, the elephant is like a tree. And another man grabbed the tusk and said, no, the elephant is hard and sharp like a spear. And still another man was groping along and put his hands on the side of the elephant and said, the elephant is like a wall. It's flat and hard. And the final man grabbed the tail and said, no, guys, the elephant is like a snake. Now, this parable is often told to illustrate that there are many paths to the same God. Each religion has a partial grasp of the truth. The analogy of the elephant is admittedly appealing. It seems to make sense of the many religions that are out there in the world. It gives everyone the benefit of the doubt and says, essentially, we all have it a bit wrong and a bit right. And as a word of caution, I'm not advocating here that we react arrogantly to people of differing backgrounds or religion, religious experience, religious experiences than our own. 
In fact, Christians ought to be the most grace-filled and loving people in dialogue about the exclusivity of Jesus because it's only by God's grace that we have come into a relationship with the living God. Arrogance has no place in theological dialogue. However, we should be as clear as Jesus is. The teaching of Jesus is clear. His message stands in stark contrast to the message of the elephant. The elephant is not a leg or a tusk or a tail. The elephant is an elephant. There are not many ways to God. Jesus is the only way. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And in Jesus' reply to Philip, he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Do, not, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? In Jesus' reply, Jesus is calling Philip to a bigger view of who Jesus is. Philip's view of Jesus and who he is, who he's been with this whole time, is too small. God's glory is found completely in the person of Jesus. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the full radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. The elephant in Jesus has roared. He is not a tree. He's not a spear or a wall or a snake. He is the creator of the universe. He is the God of Abraham and Jacob. He is the God who parted the Red Sea for Moses. He is King David's God. And if you look to Jesus, you see God. God has chosen not to stay silent. He has communicated that there is one way to God, and that is by trusting Jesus. Now, I personally resonate with the blind men in the elephant story. I am terrible with directions. I have often said to my friends that I am the worst person with directions that they will ever meet. In fact, my parents, when the GPS units first came out, bought for me those big boxes and put it in my car, knowing that if they didn't, they would probably lose their son. <laughs> and now with my phone, I feel lost and blind if I leave it at home. I feel utterly and completely lost because it has my GPS. And the Bible communicates that all humans are blind and lost. Apart from Jesus, we are groping about. Yet God has spoken, and God has given us a way back to him. Jesus is the GPS back to God. He is the path. And you may be here today or listening online and searching for answers. And if that's you, God is pursuing you. The creator of the universe has gone to great lengths to reveal himself to the world and to you. Because of sin, we have been lost and we do not see clearly and we have sinned against a holy God. Yet Jesus is the way because 
he came to restore your relationship to the Father by living the perfect life that we couldn't live and dying the death that we deserved. By entrusting your life to him, he covers you with his righteousness so you can stand one day in the presence of God forever. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. The, life's, light, the answer to life's greatest questions is found right here in John 14. Get to know Jesus and find peace with God. Practically, my encouragement to you would be that you, if you're searching for answers, start reading one of two things. Start reading the book of John, maybe with a Christian friend. Have them point to you along the way. Help them under, help, have them help you understand who Jesus is and what you're reading. Or the second thing, don't wait another day. Give Jesus your life today because you may not need more time and you may not have more time. Hear Jesus in verse 11 and respond to him immediately as he says, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Now, all of that is great for life after death. But what about today? And that's where Jesus goes next in response to Philip's question. Now remember, the disciples are in the upper room surrounding Jesus. Judas has already left to betray him, and they are told that Jesus is going to leave them. He's going to die. And the chief disciple, Peter, has been told that he will fail Jesus in Jesus' greatest hour. Fear of what's to come, anxiety about the future, their hearts are troubled. The third reason, then, he gives them to be at peace, the third reason that they can trust him, is that he gives us power for today. Verse 12. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Greater works than these. Remember, these guys just saw Jesus walk on water. Feed thousands with a few loaves and a few fish. Calm storms with his voice and call a dead man out of a grave. And we are to do greater works than these. So how are we to do greater works than Jesus? This can be understood in two ways. One, greatness of scope. Jesus on earth was bound to his physical body in the place in the region of Israel. And now by his spirit, he fills the whole church, all believers, everywhere, all over the world. His mission of redeeming humanity through faith in Jesus is at work through his church all over the world, no longer just in the region of Judea and Samaria, it's scattered throughout the world. And so the second way our works are greater is that of revelation. We now have, in understanding who Jesus is, perspective of the cross and his word. And looking backwards, we can see who God, who God is completely. We get to look at his finished and completed work on the cross. God's glory is fully displayed in Jesus' works. 
namely his miracles, they were not merely to perform a magic trick that perform a service to someone. His miracles were to point to something greater. They were to reveal God's glory through revealing the identity of Jesus. So now, the works that we do are in fact greater than what Jesus did because in the gospel, in the good news of what we have, of what Jesus said and what he did and what he did in ultimately defeating death and beating it and raising to, right, rising to the right hand of the Father, we know all of that completely and it's spreading throughout the whole world. And that's not the only startling claim that Jesus gives us in these, in these verses. In verse 13, he goes on to say, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you, have, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now this sounds like if we have a relationship with Jesus, that we have a perpetual genie in a bottle. Any wish we want to fulfill our greatest dreams and our greatest desires, we can have it. We simply need to ask Jesus. Popular on faith television is the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is the belief that through increased faith, God increases health and wealth. So what happens when you pray for the illness of a loved one and God does not respond? What happens when you need to feed your family and that job never comes? What happens as loneliness sets in and you pray and you pray and you pray for that spouse and that spouse never comes? There are two likely ditches that the prosperity gospel leads people to. Either you give up hope in God because he's not able, or worse, he's not willing to help you in your time of need. Or you see the problem as yourself, not having enough faith for God to reward you in your prayer. So it leads to doubt and shame. Remember, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Good Bible reading helps us guard against the pitfalls of the prosperity gospel. As we look at the rest of scripture and even Jesus' teaching in these few chapters in John, we see that suffering and even persecution is a promise guarantee for his church. So if Jesus doesn't mean that he's going to give us our best life now and change the circumstances that we don't like in our life, then what does he mean when he says that whatever we ask for in his name, he will grant it? Tim Keller, in his book on prayer, notes that the Apostle Paul, in all the prayers of him that are recorded in the New Testament, we see none of Paul calling and asking God for a change of circumstances. And this is coming from Paul, who's writing from prison most of the time, to a church that is in the middle of persecution. He prays not for changed circumstances of himself, or that of others. And this is not to say that we cannot pray for changed circumstances. We should bring all our requests and all our anxieties to God. 
but it is to say what hope Paul had. What hope in God's power does he have? Where does his hope rest as he prays for himself and others? Ephesians 3, 16 through 19 gives us one snapshot of Paul's prayer. And he says this, I pray that according to the wealth of his glory, the Father may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner person that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That prayer goes on to ask God for the power to know God and his love. Our greatest good, Paul knows, and Jesus knows, is God. Jesus dwelling in us through faith gives us the power to know him today not just when we die. He gives us his power to commune and be with him and give us peace amidst any circumstance as we continue to carry out the mission that he's given his church and the world. He continues to be in us as we do what he's invited us to do. A week ago or so, we had our old driveway ripped out and had a new driveway put in. To do that, the construction workers brought in large tractors. And my kids, they stood there constantly loving watching these tractors rip apart our old driveway. I loved watching them. And I was standing there with my 20-month-old daughter, Aubrey, and she was watching happily. And at some point, I slipped away to kind of get a different different view of the tractors that I was watching. And Aubrey did not know I had slipped away. And she looked up and suddenly I was gone. And she freaked out. She cried, she turned, she ran, she bumped into my leg, she grabbed on, she looked up and realized it was me and then turned and continued watching the tractors with a big smile on her face. Now her circumstance did not change. The tractors did not go away. All that changed was knowing that I was there And in her eyes, I was stronger than the tractors. And my presence brought her peace. How much more then does God dwelling in us give us power to have peace through whatever circumstance we face? Now, this is all great in theory. It's a funny illustration of a 20-month-old baby girl. But what about real life and when it hits? I have a good friend in the last two weeks. He's 33 years old. He's diagnosed with cancer. He has four kids under six and a beautiful wife, and they both love the church and Jesus. And in my wife's conversation with his wife as they were texting after they learned about the news. Our minds and our hearts went to the worst places. We were gripped with fear for our friends. We were anxious for them. We were sad for them. And as I was texting him, the one who had cancer, 
He sent me this text back that I'm going to read for you. He said, we are clinging to the one who keeps us trusting. There is no way that we could make it through this without faith in Jesus and his body, the church, around us. The peace of God is real, tangible, and available today through faith in Jesus. And if our trust is in wealth, in things, they will tarnish. If if our trust is in our body's health, you know how that goes. It will decay. If our trust is in the strength of our feelings or the love of loved ones, we will or they will let us down. Jesus, though, does not disappoint. Jesus is trustworthy. We have an eternal home with him. And in the cross, he secured our place with him forever. He gives us power today to live in the midst of tension and trial. And in him, in clinging to him, we have a peace that nothing or no one can take away from us. So with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. And specifically, we're grateful for the words of Jesus that he gave to his disciples the night before he was turned over to his death. And how he chose to encourage his people. We're grateful that we get to hear words from Jesus himself saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. God, you are good and you are loving enough to pastorally care for us in our time of need and to encourage us and bring us comfort. And I pray, God, that we would know the strength and power of your peace and of your presence even now today. As we grip on, as we cling on, as we continue to remember your promises that you've placed here before us, that you do not abandon us. You are with us. And one day we will be with you and it will all be right. You are coming back. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.